and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. What's it like? Condition. <laughs> Good afternoon and welcome to Flavour with an hour of food and drink news and features for Cambridge and South Cambridgeshire. Brought to you by Alan Alder, Sue Bailey and me, Matt Bentman. On today's programme we have Steve Thompson, the foraging chef, and he'll be telling us what's currently around for the picking. And local chef Rosie Sykes will be back with some ideas for jam making. We also hear about a local mushroom farm. And Laura Donahue from the blog Crumbs on the Table will be here with her essay about apricots. But first, we'll start with a superb new venture at Trumpington Meadows. They have a newly established market there. Well, I say newly. They're about to hold their fourth one tomorrow. That's Sunday the 18th of July. The market occurs every third Sunday, I think. And I went along to the last one to give you a flavour of what to expect. A little bit of summer music in this beautiful weather. So hi, we're here today at the Trumpeton Meadows Sunday Market. Only our third time doing it, so we're very excited to have everybody join us for music, food, basically all sorts of things that you can buy from a, a local trader. That's Karen. The Trumpington Market was put together by herself and Gillian, two residents of the relatively new Trumpington Meadows community. So it's all organised by a residence group, and we call ourselves the Trumpington Meadows Delivery and Action Group. Because it's hard when you first all move in, nobody knows anybody. So having open, friendly events like this is what it's all about, isn't it? Getting together and having a good time. And And getting to know your neighbours and people in the community. I think it's a great way to meet people, so... And plenty of stallholders happy to be back in business and on a new market too. A lot of people are working from home, so when we have little pop-ups like this going on, they just want to nip down and grab a cake. It's nice to be back. Who doesn't love cake? <laughs> Lots of local businesses, stallholders. It's been lovely. I have ice and sugar everywhere. <laughs> I've started building brownie stacks now. It's gradually growing and I think it's been well supported. Whether it be music or a bar. Food fans and music, so pop along. More importantly, lots of people are getting to know it now because when it first started, not everyone knew. The local community, which I believe there's over 1,200 people who live in Trumpington, are starting to be more aware of it. It's the third Sunday of every month. And I think it's about giving something back to the community and they're supporting us. Uh, For the whole market, that is. And 18 months of COVID rules meant that people were willing to celebrate even the smallest things. That's it. I mean, I had one guy, it was really sweet, he wanted to celebrate the fact that he could introduce two grandchildren into his bubble and he wanted chocolate cheesecake to celebrate. And I thought that was just so sweet. In Karen's words... Well, we're just making it up as we go along, aren't we, really? But we're having a good time doing it and that's that's what matters. I'm enjoying it. And I do like baking as well, but... (laughs) This is a market for everybody. You know, we'd love people to come from Cambridge or Trumpington. At the moment, we just advertise in Trumpington Meadows because that's where we live. Entertainment and great treats and now alcohol, which is quite exciting. So that's a real push out the boat. But, you know, we've enjoyed it, haven't we? And I think it can happen again. A nice place to spend an afternoon in the sun with live music and live alcohol. And overlooking the whole market was a lady selling gin from a horse box. This was my baby. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, 
I'm an equestrian girl at heart. A horse box and gin just seemed the logical thing for me to do. <laughs> Hi, I'm Hannah, I'm from the Beaufort Box, a mobile bar. We specialise in gin because that's my favourite tipple. We also have an inboard draft system, so we can offer kegged lager, craft beer from Wild Sky Brewing, spirits, whiskies, cocktails. We're pretty flexible. So we just hope we'll go from strength to strength and we're expanding every time. And variety is the spice of life at Trumpington Meadows Market. We've got great cheese and pie man, and we've got a fish guy, and we've got... Yeah, you wouldn't believe what we've got here, so... Lots of pies and pasties from the cheese and pie man, like... Minty lamb, particularly nice. The game is always very popular, and that's venison, duck and pheasant. And we have our lovely steak and ale and steak and stilton, all freshly made, locally produced at a place called Great Dunmo. Along with our cheese, we've got our Baron Bigod, which is a local one to us in Suffolk. A very famous one, which is raw and pasteurised English brie. It will compete with any French brie all day long. All day long. And we'll champion English cheeses, purely because I think we've got some great cheeses in this country. Along with Cambridge Blue, which is called Midsummer Blue. It's a fantastic cheese. They've been producing for over four years. Fantastic cheese. But produced just on the outskirts of a place called Bungie in Suffolk. And it's a Midsummer Blue. Have a taste. It's not blue. <laughs> um, you'll be very surprised. Can I eat it with the skin on? Oh, I hope so. It's part of the right. And the cattle are grazed on Midsummer Meadow. Oh, right, okay. That's really nice. Can you see how the blue comes through? And it really does. It's got a beautiful... If you have that with apple cider, plain cracker, a pear, that just beautiful... Or even quince. Yeah. Oh, I can see now the blue. Yeah, can see it's in the through. middle. Yeah. You see that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Look at the colour of it. That's how it should be. Cannot recommend it enough. In fact, we've actually sold out. <laughs> so, uh, I'd love to recommend it, but we left. But great cheese. And if the children want to come along and sing here and dance, yeah? Would you like to? Let's dance. My name's Philippa Slatter and I'm a newly elected county councillor and I'm here in Trumpington Meadows. The organisers of this event have done a brilliant job in bringing together not just the food vans, which they've been doing for some time now, but we've actually got a farmer's market plus a craft market. Because it's brilliant, isn't it? Don't you think? And, and I haven't had time to buy me fish yet, so do you think I could get and do that? Yes, loads. Go and get some. Go and get some crab. Right. we got some crab, we've got some scallops. Yeah, oh, that's really a bit you know, it, it's an experience to come along and enjoy it and listen to some music at the same time. And I, and I think the word has spread. So when we started the first market, we had five traders. And then the next one, we moved to about 15 to 20. So we, I, I think the word is spreading. And, you know, there are traders and small businesses who have reached out to us and said, can we come and join your market? And, and we're happy to promote local businesses. So. And speaking of local businesses, checking out some more food stalls, I came to one called Nonna's Lab. Yeah, hi, um, I'm Roberto from Nonna's Lab. We are an Italian daily and we just opened less than a year ago. Uh, so yeah, Nonna's Lab comes from the fact that Nonna means grandma in Italy. All the recipes we are using in our shop, they actually come from my mom and my grandma. And lab instead of kitchen because we try to give something different to the customers that is not 100% traditional. Roberto told me that he'd been cooking since he was 16. He's 28 now. He left Italy, bringing his mother and grandmother's recipes to the UK to adapt them for the British market. 
two products that we have here today that uh, I'm actually really proud of. The first one, of course, it's our homemade pasta. So we bring our semolina flour directly from the south of Italy. And the other thing, it's our uh, focaccia pugliese. That is a focaccia different from all the other focaccias you can find around because it's made with semolina instead of white flour and also have some mashed potato into the dough that makes it uh, softer inside and crisp air outside. It's absolutely amazing. In fact, we are really, really happy because our customers, they really enjoy both of our, uh, these products and it couldn't make us happier than what we are already. <laughs> This might be just a little bit of fun. Would you like to say anything to your mum and your grandmother in Italian? Ah. And I will include it in the program. Oh yeah, why not? Quindi sì, nonna e mamma, grazie veramente tanto per tutto quello che mi avete insegnato perché <laughs> sta andando benissimo e senza di voi non ce l'avrei fatta e spero state ascoltando anche voi questo podcast e grazie di, grazie di tutto. Okay, that's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> I was a bit nervous. <laughs> At a different stall, a lady was selling a variety of cakes, and the portions were big. Easily the biggest slice of millionaire shortbread that I have ever had, and it was from Cambridge Luxury Bakes. Uh, may I have one of these, since it's an emergency, clearly. Uh, may I have one of these um, chocolate, chocolate orange millionaire shortbread, please? Ridiculous mashups with absurd portion size. <laughs> This is a bodybuilder. I think he has to train yeah, every week from Whiz Beach. Um, I get a message on Instagram asking for like four or five cookie dough millionaires to be put aside for him. I think by the time he's got on the train, he's eaten two or three of them. And he shouts about them on Instagram and he has vouched that they are the best millionaires he's ever tasted. <laughs> Hi, I'm Debbie and I make macarons. My company's called Macarons by Kiwi Debs. I fill mine mainly with chocolate ganaches, so I flavour my chocolate. I can put passion fruit in, mango, raspberry, salted caramel is another good one. Making cheesecakes is an awful lot easier. (laughs) (laughs) And that's Glynis from the CB21 Cheesecake Company. She and Debbie sometimes share a stall. But it goes quite well together, you see, because you've got the cheesecakes. If I bring the fudge and the Turkish delight and the macarons, it just, you know, calories on the stall. Sugar overload. Yeah, get your sugar kick here. Sugar, fish, focaccia, scallops, jams, cakes, cookies, gin, cheese, beer and plenty more being added with each successive Trumpington Sunday market. The best thing about all of this is the people we've met along the way. Like, you know, there's some really great other traders out there and customers. We've got like a little following now. The people make it what it is. The market will just grow and grow. And, and get back into life again. I mean, that's what we've been missing. So, you know, happy days. It's just nice, this market. It's got a nice feel to it. Yeah, yeah. It's real grassroots stuff. I mean, you know, anybody can come. Anybody can join us. You're uh, welcome. <laughs> Music is provided by Chorus de Samba with Caroline's on vocals. Yeah, we've been unemployed for a year, but. but. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to laugh about it. <laughs> Many thanks to all involved for that piece. And the next market at Trumpington Meadows is tomorrow, Sunday the 18th, and we will be bringing you details of some of the many food traders who will be there in our news section, which is coming up next. 
Yeah, the first of our news breaks now, beginning with a look at where to get street food in the next few days. Uh, the Queen's Head in Newton has food vans every Wednesday from 5pm until about 8. Uh, this Wednesday, 21st of July, it's Kura Kura, the 28th, Pulmi Sherry, and on the 4th of August, it will be Steak and Honour. Uh, you can take your food away or have it with a drink at the pub. And many, many congratulations to the Queen's Head in Newton for winning the Camera Gold Award, one of only a very small number of pubs in the country to win. Gorilla Kitchen is at Food Park West from 12 until 2pm on Wednesday the 21st and at Food Park by the University Library on Friday the 23rd. And that's also from 12 till 2. On Saturday, Gorilla Kitchen is in Fordham at the Royal British Legion from 5 until 8 o'clock. L Editions is running Saturday night food events at Cambridge Cookery School. On the 7th of August, there's South African food with Chef Donkey. Five courses for £30 per person. On the 14th of August, Fasta Pasta is serving fresh pasta with sauces and sides from £15 per person. And on the 21st, it's City Boys, fish-based dishes from £12 per person. And on the 28th, Fasta Pasta returns with its fresh pasta and sauces. So, to book, send a direct message via Twitter to L Events, or you can email them, info.leventslimited at gmail.com. News from the markets now. Emerald Foods, who sell a superb range of teas, coffees, olives, spices, nuts and many other foods at Cambridge Market, are off on holiday. They finish today and will return on the 3rd of August. The consultation on developing Cambridge's market square has been extended to July the 31st so that people can see for themselves what the possible replacement stall will look like. Uh, far too lacking in space for some of the present traders unless shelving could be fitted, I would say, but then they'd be harder to demount. There are some very, very real concerns about this and it's not looking good. Tomorrow, 18th July, from 10 till 2, there's the monthly Sunday market at Trumpington Meadows with a wide variety of stalls, including food stalls such as Sweet as Jam, Prestige Donuts, The Cheese and Pie Man, Cambridge Luxury Bakes, Coast to Coast Fresh Fish, Fudge Apron, Saffron Veg Company, Raised in Rampton, Polpetta Pasta, Nuna's Lab and CB21 Cheesecakes. That's in the square outside Sainsbury's. And finally for this new section, Finn Boys at the Fish Butchery in Mill Road have the first of the season's Cornish sardines. And we'll have more news later in the programme. But now on to mushrooms, a food that often looks a bit dried out on shops' shelves, but there is now a new local company that grows them and sells them on the day that they've been picked. Alan went to Coton to visit Cambridge Mushrooms and spoke with Andrew and Michelle Duggan. Tell me some of the mushrooms that you're growing at the moment. Uh, so we have um, golden oysters, which are the, the bright yellow ones. They grow really nice sort of caps on the top of them. Then we have the tree oyster, which is um, a different type and it's it varies from blue if it's quite cold to sort of uh, paling out at like a silvery grey if it gets above 20 degrees. Uh, we have the shiitakes which we grow on sustainably sourced oak wood as opposed to straw. You can grow them on straw but in the wild they grow in oak so we keep that. Inoki, uh, we have the king oysters which you know the big ones they're really favoured by chefs. Uh, we have the white oysters which are similar to the grey oysters but they're a variety from florida so they're 
uh, a mutated cousin of the silvery tree oysters and they grow pure white and they're they're really popular yeah so how long have you been doing it then uh, nine nine months to a year i'd say we've been growing them actively selling them since february, february yeah and they're all over the country now pretty much we dry them and our dried packets go out everywhere all the way up to scotland and down to devon and places gosh so there's a real yeah gap in the market yeah there's a real good market for it I think one of the problems is that everything else on the market tends to be from China and has a horrible production method to it, as well as the you know vast carbon footprint. And by keeping it local, we can just just minimise all of that while keeping the quality up compared right. to what you buy on a wholesale market. Well, are there many local businesses using your mushrooms, Andy? Uh, yeah, just this week actually, we've been picked up by King's College, Cambridge. Uh, we spoke to their head chef there we gave him a sample of our mushrooms the yellows, the goldens, the white ones and he immediately came back to us asking to be their supplier so that's been our most exciting development in the past week yeah. that is quite exciting <laughs> yeah. was, we're looking forward to working exciting, with them it was very exciting wasn't it because we had literally linked in them and then said can I give you a sample and he said be delighted took the sample along on the Thursday and then the Monday he came back and said can you become one of our suppliers for the special events so it was brilliant everyone's had a few haven't they we've done um, Thrive uh, I can't even think where else but yeah, yeah Arjuna yeah. Um, they go through the hub don't they yeah. most of the, the Cambridge Hub came to us and asked us if we'd join the hub which we did and initially we got a big response didn't we we right. had the um, Mickle House cafe order some and they ran that as their sunday brunch special and when i spoke to them they said they'd sold out within the hour because they you know sounded delicious what they're doing with it so they're getting around cambridge and when people get them then i think they can't really let them go because there's no you know comparable thing out there on the market is Mm. that you can buy you know shiitakes or oysters from other companies big supermarkets say but the, the quality massively declines you know the large you go like with any product so the, the beauty with us is that the day we're delivering your mushrooms to you is the day we are harvesting those mushrooms so you get the freshest mushrooms you can possibly have instead of ones that have sat for a week two weeks in a specially humidified room to keep them okay and uh, and the same with the dried the dried the dried we uh, um, harvest them as well so if they're harvested the same day then they get dehydrated the same day mm. so then they goes into the packaging the same day as well so that's the way we do it because that's yeah. how we work actually yeah. isn't it in that respect mm. I've always had a massive interest in them because of how good they are for the environment they're delicious uh, and you can get so much food out of such a small space that they're you know amazing to feed the community basically right. why are they good for the environment if you compare them to say you know cattle farming which we all know is quite damaging then just the the amount of food that you can get in such a small space as well as the fact that they're mainly grown in straw which you know is a uh, waste product so from the waste we can just grow kilos and kilos of food for everyone really good quality mushrooms so that's what your mushrooms grow on straw yeah we mix them with uh, some sort of nutrition at the minute i'm using organic oats but it can be any grain really so whatever grain is in abundance or is um 
just use as a supplementary nutrition alongside the straw. You know, I have this picture of mushrooms growing in damp cellars, so does, is dark and moisture important? It depends on the type of mushroom, but for the ones that we grow, we try to replicate autumnal conditions, basically. So we keep the humidity around 80% humidity. We um, keep the temperature around 15 degrees, and then... Once you bring them out into that fresh air, they, they just start fruiting and they just come. And, and yeah. the fruit being the mushroom, yeah, what exactly. we call the mushroom. Yeah, Yeah, right, OK. I'm not, and, and yours isn't in a cellar, is it? No, we, we grow them in our uh, special sheds. They're, you know, lined to keep the moisture in. Perfect environment for them. One of the sheds we run using sunlight to, you know, keep the vitamin D up in the mushrooms because um, they're pretty much one of the only things in nature that contains vitamin d is, is mushrooms so if you grow them in the sun then they capture it and then you eat them and we get the vitamin d is there a difference between in the taste between mushrooms that are grown in a shed oh, that's, yeah. uh, and and the, the sort of the, the wild, the wild yeah i wouldn't say there's different in taste one of the differences actually is that because we're able to quality control ours there's less nasty bits on something you harvest from the wild because you know uh, they're favoured by slugs and other insects so anything you get from the wild you tend to be cutting off like a bit of slug damage or, which isn't that appealing where can where can people buy your mushrooms uh, we sell them online on our website cambridgemushrooms.co.uk uh, yeah farmers markets we have which farmers market do you go to uh, we have um, impington clay. Uh, yeah clay farm and that's up shelford uh, what, Linton or something Linton. we have a few different ones that we vary throughout the month what we're really waiting for is the Cambridge Market licence you know that's that's in the works at the minute and then um, the Cambridge Food Hub yeah there's lots of places on the on the markets you sell your fresh mushrooms but do you sell the powdered mushrooms? Uh, yeah oh. we sell dried mushrooms um, pickled mushrooms grow your own mushroom kits which are really easy fun to do with kids they seem to love them they two weeks and you've got some mushrooms but yeah we have lo- a few different products don't we, we have um some dried risotto mixes and just diff- different ideas in the works one the pot fresh yeah garlic. garlic pots and all sorts yeah, yeah. yeah and you've done all of this in nine months yeah. yeah i think one of one of the key things for us is the sustainability side we you know they're, they're grown sustainably so then we make sure that all of the packaging and everything reflects that same ethos so it's if we have to use plastic, which we really don't like to use, then we make sure it's recyclable, you know. Uh, so so everything is is made sure that there's minimal damage to the environment. Mm. We we don't have any chemical runoff water because it's all natural. Uh, there's, you know, there's all of the mushrooms that, that are maybe a bit lacking in quality for, a, for, like, a consumer, then I'll leave out for the bees to consume and things like this mm. so we we basically just try and make it as sustainable well that ticks about every box there is andrew and michelle duggan of cambridge mushrooms there and you can get more details from their website and follow them on instagram too uh, i've had some of their mushrooms and they are delicious uh, and one in particular the golden cap is actually quite unusual it has the most wonderful tarragon flavor it really is something special I'm free. I'm free. 
Here's where we bring you details of free food available now in and around Cambridge from the Olio app, which is free to download. So, here's a few examples of what's been available locally on the Olio app. And Joe in Mill Road kicks us off with a small bonanza of baked beans that he's giving away. And Saida on Milton Road has some Italian mixed peel for baking. She'd like that to go quick because she's moving out and it's just sitting in her fridge. And finally, Stahl, who lives near King's Hedges, and he's an oleo food hero, I should add. He has a selection of Tesco mixed pastries to give away. Now, this includes multiple donuts with icing decorated with hundreds and thousands, maple and pecan pastries, those little Portuguese sweet custard tarts, croissants, and savoury cheese twists. And another free app called Too Good To Go has unsold food from restaurants and shops often at less than half price. Uh, Rather than specifying each leftover item, the surplus food is simply packaged as a magic bag, ready for you to take home instead of it being binned at the end of the day's trading. Now, Rosie Sykes with some ideas for jam. This week, Rosie will be talking about jams made from peaches, blackcurrants and mulberries. Some of the recipes involve adding leaves and these are removed from jam at the end of the cooking process because the sugar makes them hard, though mint leaves are an exception to this. Rosie began by talking about peach jams. With peaches, I often would put a couple of the peach leaves in if I was making peach jam. Peach and raspberry is a lovely jam combination. The peach leaves, I think you probably know, they smell of almonds as well. So by using the leaves, you get a lovely sort of bit of almondy flavour in there. Peach and rose is lovely as well. I was lucky enough to get some mulberries last year, which make an absolute wonderful jam. Just very simply mulberries. I don't think you should put anything else with them, really. Blackcurrant leaves are really, really nice. They taste very lemony. But I've done blackcurrant and mint is rather nice. But with that, I did the big stem of mint while I was cooking it. And then I actually finely chopped some fresh mint and stirred it in just before I put it in the jars. That was Rosie Sykes. And Rosie will be back next time with some more ideas for jam. Yeah, and these features have inspired me to make some jam. I tried gooseberry with elderflower and it is delicious. Uh, And I think one of the peach jams will be next. More news now. The Tickle Arms in Whittlesford has its annual beer festival from 30th of July to the 1st of August with food from Smokeworks. Uh, Some great news. The plum season is underway. Bushelbox Farm in Willingham has harvested its first Herman plums of the season. Cambridge Sustainable Food is looking for volunteers who would like to help prepare and distribute holiday lunches to families across Cambridge over the summer holidays. You can contact them via Instagram if you're interested. Rubbish Cooks at Parker's Tavern is back on the 26th of July. It costs £20 for three courses. Book via email inquiries at parkerstavern.com. Cambridge Sustainable Foods Eating for Our Future campaign launches on the 19th of July with a film night on its YouTube channel. Uh, The films are In Our Hands and Inhabit, and you can book a ticket through Eventbrite or join direct from the YouTube channel. And two establishments that have had to close for a few days because of the extraordinary times we live in are now open again. They are Bald Brothers in St Andrew's Street and Round Church Street and the Wine Rooms in Hills Road. Café Foy 
is allowing you to order food from Foodstuff from any producer and enjoy it at their tables by the quayside, Sunday to Thursday from 3pm, i.e. when they're not serving themselves. Details be placed on the tables. Uh, another symbol of extraordinary times, Cambridgeshire County Council has a holiday activity and food programme which provides holiday childcare, activities and food, at least one meal a day, for any primary or secondary school child who receives benefit-related free school meals. To get details of the scheme, eligibility and how to book a place, go to the Cambridgeshire County Council website and find holiday activities and food. On Tuesday, I caught up with Steve Thompson, the foraging chef, and as usual, he was a mine of information about what's good for foraging right now, and he had some great ideas for what to do with it too. So yeah, we're into July. It's been warm, it's been wet. Um, the good thing about warm and wet means that the mushrooms are starting to come through, which is always good, so keep your eye out on them. So what we're going to talk about first is a couple of different flowers we've got growing at the moment. So the first one we're going to talk about is Rose Bay Willow Herb. And we talked about that last month with the shoots and everything, so this is the next stage of the harvest. And it's when it flowers. What we do is we take the flowers, they're gorgeous pink flowers, we dry them out, and they have this wonderful cranberry flavour to them. It, it's akin to cranberry, it's not exact, but it's got that lovely kind of sharp, berry flavour to it. That sounds delicious. Viscous flowers is one of the things people have made teas out of. Yeah, I think that's probably quite a good flower to compare it to almost. It's got the same sort of qualities to it while still being different, but it's it's another lovely one. Yeah, you can make teas out of it, cordials out of it, you can use it to infuse into things, jellies, infuse it into creams with panna cottas, we've made butters out of it before. <laughs> that's Rowan in the background. Reading foraging books. <laughs> yeah, so it's got a lovely flavour and it's a great it's a great second use of the plant. Um, a great third use of the plant now is once it flowers, is using the leaves and it's making something called Ivan's chai or Ivan's tea. And that used to be a really popular tea in this country up until, up until breakfast tea overtook it. There's a few things. I think you can research online. It's to do with smear campaigns against it and it all changed. But it's, it's a tea that started really in Russia. And it's very easy to make, actually. You take the leaves of the Rose Bay Willow herb, you pick them, Take them home, leave them in the basket for about an hour or so just till they start to just wilt a little bit and then take each leaf in your hand and roll it up and just kind of give it a little bit of a bash between your hands. Then put them all in a bowl on top of each other, all rolled up still. Cover that and leave that for about 24, 48 hours until they start to go really nice and black. And then you can dry it out. It's called a fermented tea, but it's not really fermentation, but it's, it's a wonderful tea. We make loads of it every year. And when you say dry it out, do you mean in a dehydrator? Yeah, or... in a dehydrator, on a sunny windowsill, mm-hmm. any of those ways, whatever works best for you. That's really interesting that it's a it's historic English tea or British tea, if you like. The next thing that's wonderful at the moment, which is all over my driveway and is my excuse for not weeding, is uh, pineapple weed. The best way to describe it, I mean, the leaves are really feathery. It's basically like a daisy chamomile, but without the petals. It's really common. It's really good at this time of year. And it likes really harsh growing conditions. So it likes dry, really compacted, bad soil, basically. Mm. And so look in your cracks in your driveway and your pavements, on the edge of footpaths, on the edge of farmer's fields, you quite often get a lot. Like All around those sort of kind of more barren areas that aren't looked after as well. It's quite low growing, isn't it? It is. It's really low growing. Yeah, it doesn't get up more than about six inches off the floor. It quite often grows with chamomile and things like that. There's nothing really you can confuse it with. And the easy way to tell is to take the buds. And if you tear the buds in half, that's where it gets its name, pineapple weed. Real strong pineapple and chamomile smell to it. 
We use the plant in two different ways. The leaves itself have got a more chamomile flavour, so we use that for infusing things. I've heard people put it in salads and stuff, I don't find it that pleasant. But as an infusion to get a chamomile flavour is great. Or we take the bud heads and we tear them up and we use them so we can either use them fresh to infuse. Like if you look on my page, there's a recipe for pineapple weed and red clover iced tea, which is lovely. The main thing that we do with it is we infuse it into vinegar and we use it to make our jalapeno and pineapple weed relish. Your green relish, really nice. That's our main use of pineapple weed, but there is so many other uses for it and it's a really versatile little flower. The next thing we're going to pick this afternoon again, isn't it? Because we've been picking them earlier in the week, is green walnuts. So it's a really good time to get to the walnuts before the squirrels do. Well, now's a good sort of time. I mean, anywhere really from the end of May onwards, but depending on the seasons, but I found it's been a bit later this year. But first of all, we'll talk about pickling them. And the trick for that is to make sure you can get a needle straight the way through. If you yes. can get a needle through the walnut, then you know it's fine. You can do that. So then what we do is we pick them, we prick them, we then brine them for a month. Give them a nice long brine and a nice strong salty sugary solution. How would you make the brine? So the brine, we take a litre of water, 200 grams of salt, 200 grams of sugar. It's quite a standard brine we use for a lot of things because mm -hmm. we want when we brine something, we want it to be intense. If we're talking about other things like fish and meats and stuff, then we bring the brines right down. For a lot of the forage produce, we go quite strong, quite intense. So we prick them, we brine them, we make that brine, we leave it to cool, we pour it over the walnuts and then we leave in for a, a dark good place or yeah just out of direct sunlight it doesn't need to be refrigerated but it can be if you've got the space then once that's ready we then pickle them so we literally make a pickling liquor let it cool and pour it over the top and that again is another one of our standard pickling liquors it's the one two three that i think i've talked about before yes, you have. one yes. part vinegar two part sugar three part water mm -hmm. it's basically we do it like that because it's the least acidic that you can do to still preserve. So it just okay. falls below the 4.6 pH, so it makes things. So, but that gives it a lovely flavour, and then we leave at least until Christmas. So it's a nice sort of summer planning for Christmas thing to do. If even better, for a year and then make stuff out of them. And then simply, the easiest way to make the walnut ketchup, which we quite often do at the end, oh, it's one of my really favourite nice. things, so I can have it on everything, is we literally take the pickling liquor and the walnuts, and we put them into a pan, we cook it down a little bit, put yeah. it up to the boil, and just let it simmer. We don't want to lose too much of that liquid and then we blend it. That is it, it's that simple. But it's time, it's, uh, it takes time. If you collect them now, you get it going. The actual process is itself, as I say, is really ideally, you want to be making walnut ketchup with your last year's walnuts. A couple of months will do, if you want to give it a try sooner. Maybe maybe pick two lots, maybe do some sooner so you've got a little bit to try and then leave the other ones around. I've never had a go at doing it, but every year I think about it, then the squirrels get there first. <laughs> oh, they always do, yeah. The other thing though that's nice and easy, if the shells started to form a little bit, don't worry, as long as you think you can still get a knife through them, Nocino is your friend. Nocino? Yes, it's a Italian walnut liqueur and it's very nice. Obviously, it goes without saying it has got a nutty flavour to it, but it's not got the kind of rich roasted nut flavour that you would get if you were using wet walnuts. Because we're using the green walnuts, it's got a much more kind of bittersweet, nutty, almost on the edge. I don't think spicy is quite the right word, but it's it's got kind of almost a menthol -y quality to it. It's not spicy, it's not menthol -y, but it really has that kick to it. Yeah, it's really easy to make. Again, literally chop up your green walnuts, cover them in vodka. I put a couple of spoons of brown sugar in mine as well. And then if you want to add any spices, you can. What spices would you add if you're going to? Well, what we're going to go on to next ah. is a couple of lovely wild seeds that we've got growing around here at the moment which you need to get out quick certainly for the first one which is common hogweed i've been seeing that quite a lot recently it is lining the roadsides at the moment it's really the one it's the next umbilical that takes over the roadsides after the cow parsley dies back big one isn't it yes. it is yes yes it is and it's it's lovely at the moment and it's just going to seed now there's so many different views on when you pick the seeds whether you pick them green whether you pick them brown whether you pick them really when they're fully dried 
I like to pick them when they're green. I think you get a much better flavour to them. And we still dry them. Drying them quicker, I think you get an almost sweeter flavour to them. The flavour of hogweed seeds is wonderful. It's almost a cross between, like, say, cardamom and orange. So places, say, like tangerine peel and things like that. I mean, that's lovely and pretentious, but really it's orange and a bit of cardamom yeah. as well. It is a spice in its own right, really. One that we should use lots more. It doesn't have the air miles and the else that we use in our cupboards. It's on our doorsteps. So the Apatio family is something that really, people look at it with a bit of fear. It shouldn't be. It's a good one to get your attention to detail in. It's the carrot family is another name for it. This is common hogweed, Common hogweed, not giant, not giant hogweed. hogweed, yes. Right. What's the distinguishing point between the two? Common hogweed, Heraclium spondylium, is the one we're looking for. Giant hogweed is huge. It's much bigger. The leaves are much more aggressive. The important thing is it's got splotches on the bottom of its stem, like poison hemlock has. So it's another one, a lot in that family. It's a good indicator, really, that you've got something that could be a bit nasty. You add the seeds of that. Are they? Do they look similar? To be honest, it's avoiding the sap that's the problem. So... As far as I'm aware, giant hogweed can still be eaten. And I do know someone recently who's had an experiment with it, and I will give it a go at some point myself. Right. I haven't got around to it yet, so don't take my word at all for anything on it. But as far as I'm aware, it can be eaten. It's a sap you want to avoid. It's the phototoxicity in the sap. From what I've been reading recently, that's destroyed by heat. There's quite a few of the carrot family that have that, and common mm. hogweed does have that quality, just not as bad. So maybe it's safer just to wear gloves when you're picking the hogweed seeds and don't pick it on a really bright sunny day, for instance. I've never had an issue. So when we're talking about giant hogweed, that's of six, seven foot. Common hogweed can be up to three, four meters. It can be huge, common hogweed. So giant can be even bigger than that. Common hogweed can still be huge. It can still be a big... You have real spiky giant needles on giant hogweed as well. They really are almost like needles coming out of the stems. It's a really aggressive plant. Before you go pick it, freshen yourself up, but certainly around Cambridgeshire, if you're looking at the side of roads and verges where all of the common hogweed is, you're much more likely to find common hogweed. Like I, I know of about three plants of giant hogweed within five miles of where we are now, and that's it. Whereas you're looking at thousands of plants of common hog. The last seed that we'll talk about as well, which is another lovely spice that we'll put in our chino, Alexander seeds. And they're another part of the uh, Apatia uh, carrot family. They're a bit more easier to identify. We won't go into that now. It, the seeds, it's, it's much more of a coastal plant normally. But I've noticed over the last few years, say four years ago, I had maybe one patch in Cambridge Sanders and now it's really starting to spread. Now That's there's quite a lot and it's really starting to go everywhere. So it's quite easy to pick around Cambridge. There's quite mm. a few spots. At the moment, what you're looking for is it's in its seed stage. So you'll see something that looks like your classic carrot family plant on mm -hmm. the edge of the roadsides again. It's another one like that. It's an off-lime green colour at the moment. So you know when your grass gets a bit scorched, it starts to go that paler green. That's the kind of colour the seeds are looking at the moment. They will turn to being big and jet black. Now, when picking any seeds like that from this family... I would make sure that you've identified the plant in its earlier stages. So don't take something that's got the black seeds in this family. And hope you've got the right and one. And hope you've got the right one. Because there are other ones that are not. So the Alexander seeds have got this wonderful flavour that's... It's not too dissimilar to having a pepperiness to it. So we use it quite similarly to black pepper. We dry them out. So you can either pick them green or pick them black. I don't think it matters too much with the Alexanders. There's a couple of different things that we use them for where we do pick them green, but I think if you're just preserving them and using them as a spice, you're not gonna notice heftily the difference. So pick them either, dry them out, even if they're black, dry them out because they get mold quite quickly if you don't really them. And then store them like you would your black peppercorns. You can even put them in a little mill and crack them into things. There's a recipe using the green ones, which we pick green and then dry out, and we make into a carrot cake. And there's a recipe for that on my page. So oh, it's worth typing lovely. in Alexander Seeds on our Facebook search on our 
Yes, page, and it's and Facebook, The Foraging Chef, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, facebook.com forward slash The Foraging Chef, and then there's recipes on there. Anything else that we need to be looking for? As you said, it's mushrooms are beginning to come up, but perhaps shall we leave that till next time? Yeah, they'll be in full flow next time. What you're looking for now, if you do go, is start looking for the agaricus family. So mm-hmm. familiarise yourself with them. Remember the characteristics you're looking for with the yellow stainer. And that's a good one to start looking out for now because we've just noticed them popping up in the last couple of days. What I find interesting is you're saying about, particularly with the Alexanders, how they've gone from not being very many to a lot more. And of course, you have got really a very good knowledge of where to go for things. And I know what I'd love to do is one day to do a course with you because I think that would be really good fun. Yeah, that'd be great. And it's something that hopefully we'll have in the pipeline soon. If you give us a follow on Facebook or on Instagram, Instagram is Chef Steve Thompson. Facebook is The Foraging Chef. Then we are going to have an exciting announcement in the next couple of weeks. That sounds brilliant. Oh, well, it's lovely to speak with you, Steve. And Rowan has been particularly good he has enjoyed himself hasn't he and i'm very impressed the fat is already reading the books i think you're training a very good young chef thanks to steve thompson and steve's big news is that he has launched a new venture in which he will come and cook a five seven or nine course wild food tasting menu at your home with options for wild mocktail pairings and he's also doing foraging trips for sample menus and more information you can email him the foraging chef at hotmail.com In 2019, we asked Laura Donoghue of the blog Crumbs on the Table if she'd like to write some essays for flavour. Well, she did, and excellent they were too. So much so that we're going to hear one of them again. This one is about apricots. In search of the honest apricot, I'll go back to the beginning. I remember sitting on the back steps under a punitive August sun, basting a rock, pretending it was a roast. I was three. We were visiting my mother's family in rural Texas after a long drive through heat mirage and tumbleweed. It was a permanently hot, thirsty place. Drinking water had to be pumped by hand into a bucket, and I was afraid of the ladle with its spot of rust. I don't know for sure if I could see the apricot tree from those blistering steps, but that's how I remember it, as the only green thing in view whose fruits enchanted me. I was astonished that the things familiar as something I love to eat were joined to this other thing I knew as a tree. It was an epiphany, the connection between the one and the other. How could this be? It must be magic. Decades later, apricots capture a primal joy for me that comes from that first wonder at the generosity of things that grow. It's the most ravishing fruit when it's honest and the most disappointing when it's not. And it makes me actually angry to see those hard, pale rocks in our shops, knowing what they could have been. I've been chasing the ideal apricot all my life, but it's proved the most elusive of fruits. It's one of the worst casualties of what I think of as the great fruit con, where so much looks like it should, but tastes of so little. Commercial varieties of fruit are typically bred to grow fast and prolific and picked far from ripe so they can stand up to mechanized processing, transport, and storage. The industrialization of our food supply has changed the flavor of much of what we eat, from tomatoes to strawberries to apricots. A few years back, I happened to be in the right place at the right time 
to remind myself of what a real apricot tastes like, in season, where it's grown. My sister and I had a rendezvous in Montpellier, France, in the southeastern corner of the country, where it's hot enough for palm trees, which tells you something about what apricots need. The season began during our stay, and we glutted ourselves from the markets that had varieties on display from different parts of the country. Some were smaller and redder than others. These seemed the most intense, if not the juiciest. Some rounder and more moist. We had repeated taste tests and were undecided. They were all glorious, the textures just right, not mealy or mushy if you chose well, sweet but not too, and so fragrant with all that sun. More than once during these feasts, we'd recall a story our parents tell of a journey they'd taken in their younger days to Bryce Canyon in southwestern Utah. They'd driven all day through otherworldly landscapes, arriving hungry after dark at the one-horse town where they were to spend the night outside the national park. Everything on the single street had shut tight except for the bakery, which was still sweeping up. They chanced it, hoping for something, anything, to find there was one last thing left on the baker's shelves, a single golden-crusted apricot pie. They bought that whole pie and brought it back to their room, where they ate it with plastic forks, sitting on the bed, drinking motel coffee. And they raved and gave thanks and demolished that pie like it was the first and last pie created in heaven to set the example for all pies on earth. Close to the end of our stay in Montpellier, Kitty and I visited a farmer's market under the ancient aqueduct, and there we found a stall dedicated to apricots, mounds of them, sold by the people who grew them six miles outside Montpellier. These were voluptuous larger fruits, very ripe, perfect at that moment. They were sold by the kilo in slatted wooden baskets by people with stained hands and worn t-shirts who seemed anxious to sell. This was their livelihood, and it would be a bad day if they had to load those apricots back onto the truck to take home again. Despite our impending departure next day, I bought a greedy basket, not realizing it weighed over two kilos, until I'd negotiated payment with my halting French. I was struggling with my camera, two bijou barquettes of raspberries, and a bottle of rosé from a small winemaker to drink with our last night's dinner. So Kitty took custody of the apricots. We ended up walking for another few hours in the beating sun, having stumbled across a food festival in the park with white-headed chefs displaying their wares under white tents to gentlemen in summer suits and ladies in pretty frocks. By the time we'd been waylaid by that genteel spectacle and a glacé stand, I think even Kitty felt the weight of apricots as this side of burdensome. While she flew back to the States next day, I got my apricots home to England in my carry-on wrapped individually in tissue, protected with a fortress fashioned from cardboard scraps. They made it better than hoped. Those in best shape were eaten au naturel. The ones that arrived a little sore for their travels were turned into jam according to plan. The jam gods were with me. It was a perfect batch. It was, of course, sublime fruit, 
so I could have done almost anything and it would have been beautiful. But I'm sure it was also to do with the memories that kept me company as I made it. The thought of those who had grown the apricots and picked them and hauled them to market. The gratitude to Kitty for toting them on her back all day. The mental picture I carry with me of that first childhood tree that started my love affair with apricots and all things that grow. And of course, the anticipation of how good that jam would taste on a proper baguette with real butter. The little meal I think I'd choose over any other for my last on earth. Three precious jars came from this endeavor. They arrived courtesy of the post a few days later with Kitty in North Carolina and with family assembled in California. And everyone's appreciation was all I and the orchard could wish for. That encounter in Montpellier brought me so close to the apricot, but I never did find the trees. I left France yearning to see the fruits growing again and vowed someday to go back and look for them. So imagine my astonishment when, quite by accident, I discovered one more recent summer, right here in rural Cambridgeshire, a small family fruit farm that grows apricots virtually in my own backyard. I'd gone to Willingham, north of Cambridge City, on a search for the Manning family farm, where I'd been told I could find heritage variety plums. When I walked through the doors of the Bushel Box Farm shop, the unmistakable perfume of ripe apricots stopped me in my tracks. There they were in full proud view, and yes, they were grown right there on the farm, along with the plums. I couldn't believe my eyes. I bought six varieties of plum that day, and almost every apricot they had on display, my conscience just stopping me from taking the lot so other people could have some too and spread the word. So I went back again, and a third time, and I made jam and tarts and my mom and dad's pie, and we ate them fresh every day for the few weeks of their season. Being able to taste an apricot where it's grown, when it's been allowed to ripen on the tree, is a rare thing anywhere and will spoil you for life. You'll forever know the difference and never again be content with pale imposters. Growers who give us this experience do an invaluable service in retaining and rehabilitating our appreciation of flavor and the collective taste memory we have as a culture that may, if we continue to value it, help us hang on to fruit that tastes like it should. They preserve old varieties despite the fact they don't produce bumper crops or are susceptible to frosts or disease because they value them for their flavor, for the heritage, and their genetic diversity. Three quarters of edible plants have been lost globally over the past century. We're overly reliant on too few varieties, which have become increasingly inbred and therefore vulnerable. The sacrifice of taste may seem frivolous compared to the need to feed a growing population, but flavor doesn't have to be at odds with commercial realities. It's only been so because large-scale agriculture has focused on breeding varieties for yield and transport and storage. Some plant breeders are starting to look more at flavor these days, as well as crop resilience to changing climates, at least for some of the major commercial crops. In some cases, going back to older varieties and even wild ancestors. 
This makes it possible to select traits from a much greater diversity of genetic material and develop varieties that could have both flavor and the qualities our modern food system needs. The Manning daughter, Wendy, tells me there will be no apricot harvest on the farm this year. The April frosts took the blossom. Apricots flower early, so they're always at risk. She hates to tell her customers this because she knows how much we look forward to them, but she's philosophical. There's always something to challenge the fruit grower, and this season it's a combination of last summer's intense heat, putting the trees under pressure, a wet winter, and spring's repeated cold snaps. The apples and pears that are to follow in autumn will have their own challenges from this growing season, too, here in Cambridgeshire and all around the country. Growers are always at the mercy of the elements and in the front line of unpredictable climate extremes, which makes special crops like apricots all the more so when we can get them. Even what we may think of as ordinary crops can't be taken for granted. It's been like this throughout human history as long as we've been cultivating what we eat. And yet, as we know, we're entering a new age of climate uncertainty and are told to expect more of these extremes. Maybe the fact apricots can be grown in Cambridgeshire at all is partly down to these changes. I've found my apricot trees at last, and I see them as part of our fragile environment, which is so dependent on us as we are on it. The magic of things that grow seems even more miraculous when we think of how rare it is that we get to experience eating something with this kind of honesty, this immediacy. If you visit Wendy and Willingham this summer, you can find a selection of beautiful plums, though their harvest is patchy this year too, some varieties producing as usual, some not so much. The varieties change every week as some peak and some go over and some come in. Get to know everyone you can. And next year, maybe, Hopefully, there will be apricots again. That was Laura Donoghue. And what Laura said about the apricots and plums at Bushel Box Farm in 2019 is true this year too. There will be no apricots and some of the varieties of plum were affected too by the cold spring weather. However, they grow over 30 varieties and plenty have made it through. The first, called Herman, went on sale this week. Bushelbox Farm is in Station Road in Willingham and Laura's excellent blog is Crumbs on the Table. And that's Green Onions signalling the start of our jobs section. The Alex in Gwider Street is recruiting part-time bar staff. There's a flexible rota and good rates of pay. Email thealexcambridge at gmail.com with your CV or pop into the pub with it. Providence is hiring kitchen staff 45 hours a week, including just two evenings. Package depends on experience. Dolcedo in Eddington is looking for two full-time bakers. Experience in sourdough production is essential and a high level of bread production experience in every aspect from mixing to shaping and oven experience. Email dolcedopatisserie at icloud.com or phone them 0755 Here's a quick roundup of other jobs currently available. Go to the restaurant's website or social media for details, or you could pop in at a quiet time and ask. 
Uh, Pizza Express is looking for a pizza chef that pays 9.20 an hour. Amelie in the Grafton Centre wants a chef to party from 9.50 to 12.50 per hour. A chef is needed at Wagamama. The pay is £12.45 an hour. And a chef is also needed at Westminster College, where the pay is from 12 to £13.50 per hour. Chefs are also needed at Butch Annie's, where the pay is 24000 to 26000 per year, and at Zizi, which is paying £10.40 to £10.60 an hour. Gourmet Burger Kitchen is looking to recruit a head chef from 28 to 31000 per year, and a senior chef de partie is required at Downing College. The pay is 27150 per year. Finally, a Romy needs a pizza chef from £8.30 to £12.50 an hour, a supervisor, a barista and a counter assistant. And Stem and Glory requires a sous chef and that's £12 per hour. And that brings us to the end of our programme for today. Don't forget we are here on Alternate Saturdays at 12 noon, repeated on Mondays at 6pm and Thursdays at 2pm. And we will also be available on your podcast catcher of choice. Coming up next on Cambridge 105 Radio this evening is Strummers and Dreamers with Les Ray. But that's all from us. We'll be back on the 31st of July with lots more food and drink news, jobs and features. But until then, goodbye. 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 Goodbye.